Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MARS, M-A-R-S, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Today's show is also brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic for your free audiobook download. We'll talk a little bit more about our sponsors later on in the show. I'm Ben Alexander, and my co-host is John Shiji. How you doing, John? I'm doing very well. How you doing, Ben? Doing well. Fantastic. Well, uh, a couple of thanks um, this episode. I want to say a special thanks to uh, Dave Legat, who uh, who I've um, thanked previously on the show. He's uh, who wrote a an excellent article about uh, IPv6 that was inspired by episode 16, which was one man's hopes and dreams of an RF bubble. I'll do a proper follow-up show on that uh, at some point in the next week or two when I get some time, but I just want to say thank you, and if you're interested, there is a link for that in the show notes. Uh, also, uh, a thank you for the iTunes reviews. They keep coming in. They just keep coming, and uh, we appreciate every one of them. Uh, this week, though, specifically, I'd like to call out one in particular, uh, which came in on the German iTunes store from uh, someone by the name of Flavor Dynamics. I'm reasonably sure that's not their actual... Uh, personal name but that's okay anyway uh technically the outro music is uh, from 1991 uh not the 1980s and i doubt it was ever played in an elevator at any stage uh i actually wrote an article describing all of its history on uh, tech distortion there's a link for that uh, in the show notes and uh, it's one of my personal uh favorite tunes uh it's called space debris and uh in fact uh, we might just cue that up right now Okay, well, now that that's out of the way, today's episode, Ben, you know what it's about, don't you? <laughs> I do know what it's about. I'm prepping my door locks, <laughs> putting bars on the windows. Hopefully the fallout from, from audio files will not be too bad. They may hunt me down and, and kill me. I hope not. In any case, uh, so today I would like to talk about the two of the biggest, um, how should I call them, uh, I guess, hotly debated topics in cabling, and that is uh, in consumer cabling anyway. It sounds like a great trade magazine, hotly debated topics in cabling. <laughs> yeah, it does actually, yeah. Um, hmm. Someone should do that. Anyway, so I'm going to talk about oxygen-free copper cables, and I'm also going to talk about gold plating of cable uh, connectors and plugs. It may sound like a little bit of a weird topic. I actually... Uh, I only added it to the to the list this week, and it was one of those ones that when someone suggested I, I talk about it, I, I it was one of those it never occurred to me to talk about this. But I have actually done a lot of uh, research into this, and industrially speaking, I've also had a bit of experience, particularly uh, with uh, shielded cables and so on. So honestly, um, I'm surprised I didn't think of talking about this sooner. But in any case, um, we'll kick off with oxygen-free copper. 
the only difference between oxygen-free copper and normal copper, obviously it's still just copper, but when it's melted down, it's done, uh, OFC copper is melted down, in, it's done in an inert gaseous environment. That is to say, oddly enough, as the name would suggest, it's oxygen-free, right? It's no oxygen in the air. But technically, it's not 100% free from oxygen. So there's still some oxygen in it. In order to qualify to be called OFC, it has to be less than 10 parts per million oxygen in the copper. So it's a pretty minute amount, very, very small amount of it, but still technically not zero. So they say oxygen-free. It's not an absolutist thing. It's as good as. Anyway, OFC is most common in the consumer space as being the uh, figure eight speaker wire. And uh, they call it figure eight because if you chop the cable and you look at the cross-section of the cable, it looks like the number eight. These particular cables are the ones that run from the amplifier out to your speakers. Now, uh, OFC cable has usually got a, a nice fancy sheath on the cable. So you've got the, the copper and conductor in the middle and you've got the plastic sheath. Well, if it's made of plastic or PVC or whatever it's made out of, the specific kind of plastic that it's made out of, but anyway. But OFC cables, they like to make fancy, and sometimes you'll get uh, a nice clear uh, sheath on them so that you can see the pretty copper inside and look, ooh, this is very nice and expensive. I can see the wire. Uh, some of them have got a... I had uh, some OFC cable once that had a blue tinge, but it was still uh, essentially transparent, so you could see the copper. But it was, you know, again, it sort of had that strange blue sort of hue to it. But generally, RFC cable is, is either partially transparent or not, or or, um, or slightly tinged anyway. I'm not really sure why they do that. I think it's just to show off the fact that it's got copper in it, which is weird because, you know, I, all the cables have got copper in them. So essentially, OFC configurations that I've did, I did a whole bunch of digging on this on exact details for OFC cables. So I've picked a couple, and, and they're listed in the show notes. Uh, feel, feel free to look through the specs if you want to. But it's, it, I guess before we, we, we jump into the configurations, it's important to just quickly cover the way that cables are put together. So solid copper, a solid copper core, it would seem like that's what you would do. You would just get a bit of copper, you you draw the wire out because you know, one of the... One of the uh, one of the properties of the, a metal is whether or not it is, uh, let's see, this ductile can be drawn into a wire. So you would think I would draw, you would draw the copper into a wire, and that wire would be whatever diameter it is, let's, yeah, and it would have a cross-sectional area of one, 1.5 square millimeters, and it'd be a nice solid strand of copper. And you think, yeah, that'd be the simplest thing to do, right? Just put some plastic over the outside of it, and you're done. But the problem with that is that that's actually not very flexible. And the problem with cables uh, with metal is that most metals, in fact, all metals, are crystalline structures. And as you bend and then unbend them, if you know what I mean, like you sort of make a crease and then you flatten the crease out, or you, you, know, like you bend it back and forth and back and forth, what it does is it introduces dislocations into the structure of the crystal in the actual metal. And those dislocations eventually build up and build up until a series of dislocations travel all the way through the entire piece of metal. And that kind of... Uh, that's a, a wear-out mechanism for the metal, and that, that wear-out mechanism is called fatigue stress. That cracking caused by repeated movement back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, one of the ways that that is made worse is if you have a, fl a supposedly flexible cable and it's just one solid strand of copper. So essentially, there's no give in that at all. It'll simply just, because of this, the, the thicker it is, the thicker that cable is, you know, it's going to 
essentially suffer from fatigue stress far more readily than if you were to get, let's say, five or seven small cores, much smaller cores, and you then bundle them together in a group. Like a, like a, think of it like a hexagon. With seven of them, you get a hexagon, you get one in the center. So if you can imagine a little cluster of, of wires, and those are the individual cores, and I would call that a seven, that's a seven strand. That configuration is far more flexible because as you bend the cable, the copper on the inside of the curve will actually uh, bend slightly and push apart the others, while the others on the outside will actually uh, pull in and change their configuration ever so slightly, but that prevents them from getting a solid dislocation through them. The effect improves as you add more cores. So by the time you go up to several hundred cores, that's when the cables start to be called uh, ultra-flexible. Each of the individual cores themselves can't actually carry a heck of a lot of current, but you've got 100 of them, and so it all adds up. So the idea is the more, the more cores or strands you have in the cable, the more flexible the cable is. But, perhaps not surprisingly, the more expensive the cable's going to be. So the thing that I found interesting was that having a look at OFC cables, I didn't find any of them that had a small uh, strand count. So I say a small strand count, I'm like 7, 15, 21. That's a small strand count in relative terms. The one I saw, and the one that I'm going to use for the examples in this, in this discussion, is actually 189 cores. So that particular one, each of the cores is only 0.1 this is diameter. So when you quote that as a cable, you would say that's a uh, 189 slash 0.1. I then looked at an alternative, which is like a cheaper speaker wire, figure eight speaker wire, and it had a different core configuration. It wasn't OFC, and its configuration is 7 slash 025, sometimes in the uh, 0.25. And in the in, you know, if you're talking in the lingo, then you'll usually leave the decimal point out as it's assumed. So you'd have like 7025, and that's sort of that's your cable configuration, 7020, whatever. And what you get used to after a while is you sort of because you know you deal with cables long enough, like I have, and people say, oh, 7020, yeah, okay, that's 1.25 square cable. So that's the cross-sectional area. So what they do is they take the cross-sectional area of each of the strands, and they multiply that by the number of strands, and that gives you your total effective cross-sectional area for the cable. 18901 is also 1.5 square mil, the same as 7025 is a 1.5 square mil cross-sectional area. So they both have the same essential cross-sectional area. So then you might say to yourself, well, that's great. So what does that mean? And you would think that with the same cross-sectional area, they would both carry the same amount of current. Assume they're both not made out of, they're made out of standard copper, they're not made of, out of OFC. So which cable do you think would carry more current, more AC current? Would it be the 189 strand or the 7 strand? Ben, what's your guess? 189 strand? Oh, guess correctly. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Nice. So, and the reason for that is not, I don't think it's exactly obvious, but there's a there's an effect that they call the skin effect. When you're dealing with alternating current signals, of which anything except DC power, this is you can consider an alternate, an AC signal. And when that happens, because of the varying of the current, the electrons tend to be forced to, well, forced, you know, they tend to go around the outside of the actual strand. 
So the electrons themselves, you'll find the majority of the electrons are in the outer skin, if you like, of the strand, and there's hardly any in the center. So in other words, the more strands you add, the more physical area around the outside there is for the electrons to essentially use, or they prefer to use, and hence, therefore, they will have, it'll have less resistance. It's the same. It's exactly the same idea as uh, ACSR, which actually um, that stands for um, aluminium conductor steel reinforced, and that's actually what they make power lines out of. So the power lines you see in the streets, the ones hanging from the overheads, are typical ACSR. And the idea is you have a steel conductor in the centre, which is the main, the main actual uh, takes the load of the cable, but outside around the outside, clamped to the outside, you'll have aluminium uh, conductors. So the aluminium essentially has, you know, you'll have like a dozen of little, these much smaller diameter cables around the outside, and they increase the amount of effective current that these things can carry. So for the two cables that I've chosen, the 18901 and the 7025, we're talking about ohms and ohms for resistance. And these are in distances in metric apologies, but anyhow... 11.7 ohms per kilometer is the resistance of the RFC cable, remembering lower numbers are better for resistance. And for our cheaper economy example, it's 55.2 ohms per kilometer. So if you look at the numbers, it's roughly five times worse going with a cheap cable. But the numbers can be a little bit deceptive if you just think of them like that. The bottom line, 11.7 ohms per kilometer that's per thousand meters which is quite a ways over what was that so it's 1.6 miles so it'd be about uh probably about 0.6 of a mile something like that that's quite a lot of cable and i don't know about you but it's not 0.6 of a mile from my amplifier to the speaker in the back of the room I mean, unless I took the cable and coiled it up in the bottom of the, you know, the room for some reason, I'd actually have a, a coil big enough you could probably, you know, use as a cubby house or something. But, um, you know, that's just crazy, right? Well, le- later on, we'll look at the exact detail of how that shakes out. But the thing is, if you actually look at an individual strand, an identical diameter strand, from one OF- from an OFC copper cable to an OFC a non OFC strand of copper. The RFC only gives you 1% better conductivity. In other words, its resistance is 1% less than non-OFC copper or standard copper. So the gain there is minuscule. The gain you're getting, that whole 11.7 ohms versus 52, 55.2 ohms, that's coming from the fact that it's got 189 cores, not from the fact that it's OFC. That's kind of deceptive to say the RFC cable is better. Well, yeah, it's better, but it's better because it's got a different core configuration, not just because the RFC. I mean, is 1% better? Yeah, okay, that's really not worth bothering with. So I do wonder half the time if they fudge the numbers and say, oh, yeah, well, we'll we'll make the RFC cables out of these really high strand counts because that's going to give us a better overall resistance. We can say, see, 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 RFC is so much better. You know, I, I often wonder if that's the, the motivation. But in any case, look, those are those are some of the numbers. Bottom line, adding cores will give you flexibility, but it costs more to produce. Forget the RFC, it's still going to cost more to make a 189-strand cable than a seven-strand cable. Now, obviously, you've got to pull you got to pull a hell of a lot more cores. You've got to draw that many more cores out of your copper. 
it's going to take long more time. You've got to spin them all together. That's going to be a more complex thing with 189 threads versus seven. So it's going to be more expensive to build this cable. But it'll be a lot more flexible. So I guess that's a plus. And it'll have a lower resistance. That's another plus. There was also a claim I, I read somewhere. Uh, I tried hard to find this link. But anyway, years ago, I read this thing claiming that using an RFC cable improves the noise performance. So if you get standard figure eight cable, it will perform worse with noise than an RFC cable. And I distinctly remember reading that. And in case anyone out there is thinking that it has anything to do with noise, it has completely 100% nothing to do with noise. OFC will not affect noise performance at all. So in case anyone out there had that as a preconception, take my word for it. No difference. So we were uh, very happy this week to uh, welcome a new sponsor. And uh, Ben, can you tell us a little bit about Squarespace? Sure. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Now, if you're someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you've heard of Squarespace. But I'm going to try and go back to the basics of why it's such a great solution by explaining why and how we've used it at Fiat Lux to build a network website quickly and on a minimal budget. So first, it's simple and easy, and this really counts for a lot. You start by selecting one of the professionally designed templates. There's a variety of styles, but there's definitely a Squarespace look. Clean, plenty of white space, and an emphasis on imagery. The templates are deferential to your content, and they're responsive design. You don't need a different layout for different screens. You can tell when a site has been designed with mobile in mind, or when the designer was thinking only of a big screen. And it's subtle, but it makes a difference. Having those careful decisions being made for you ahead of time, it's a huge plus. It can save you hours and days of reworking designs, content, and general site structure. Now, maybe you want to handle all that stuff yourself. Sure, you can do that with Squarespace in a few different ways. Either through Layout Engine, which is their drag-and-drop content management system, or if you want to get a little bit deeper, you can edit the CSS manually. And if you want complete design freedom, you can ditch the templates entirely and use developer mode. But really, is that what you want to spend your time doing? Or do you want to be working on your business? For me, the choice was easy. I'd look for the best template I could find to start with and tweak it as needed. Iteration, not invention. So when I got started, I began with Native, which is a really clean and simple single-column layout. It works great for a single podcast. But almost immediately when I realized I was going to be doing more than one show that I wanted to build a network, I knew this wasn't going to work. So what you see now, with very minimal changes, is Avenue. Avenue has this great grid index, which is what we use to display the show art for the different podcasts on the network. I'll get compliments for the look of the site, and it's always really embarrassing, as I haven't done much to tweak the template, and I think almost everything I have done has made it worse. So all this time, I've been experimenting with different backgrounds for hosting the media, different stat services, different ways of organizing the individual pages structurally, the RSS feeds, different players... I've really tried everything, and right now you can see a pretty good variety of those options in play on the site, ranging from hosting 100% of the stuff using Squarespace's built-in audio and RSS options to combinations of things like Simplecast and Libsyn on the back end and Squarespace up front, as well as just balancing some of the new shows we've brought on right out to their existing sites. Now, did we get everything right 100% up front? No. We're still iterating, and we're still learning. And that's why Squarespace's simplicity, ease of use, and focus on solving the big problems and not getting sidetracked by edge cases actually makes it such a great tool. We can experiment easily, quickly, and cheaply, get fast feedback, and go from there. 
And while we're learning, we've got a great site, and we're paying 8 bucks a month, so what's not to like? So if you've got an idea, you've got a vision for a blog or a podcast or a small business or a big business, whatever, what are you waiting for? Go get your feet wet and start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. And if you want to save a little money and show your support for Pragmatic at the same time, you can get 10% off by visiting squarespace.com and entering offer code MARS, that's M-A-R-S, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Thank you very much for that, Ben. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about gold plating. Gold plating is what some companies push for their plugs and sockets, although typically it's for cables, hence it's typically plugs because you know most cables are plugs and the sockets are in the actual equipment. They sell gold connectors for a whole bunch of reasons. They say that you know it's it's a much lower resistance to go with gold. It's much more um, it's just better because gold is like expensive and that means it must be good or something. I don't know. I'm trying to remember exactly what the big attraction is. I mean it looks nice. I mean yeah it's gold, right? It's like wow, this must be good. The truth is that the contact resistance of gold is really – gold as a conductor is really not that great a conductor. It works. Sure, it works. But honestly, compared to something like aluminium, it's really not that fantastic. I mean, it works. That's fine. It's not going to hurt your coils too much, especially over the sorts of cables we're talking about. We're talking about you know, cables that are carrying milliamps of current. You know, they're not you know, at most you know, maybe 200 milliamps or something. Through these connectors for the because for the signal connectors because you know the, these are data signals that we're sending. It's not because the gold plating they'll do and I guess I'm I'm picking uh, I'll, I'll pick on HDMI cables because well let's face it HDMI cables are sort of you know uh, have become a, a a problem because everything's going HDMI now we've got HDMI on on most computers these days uh, I say most computers um, my MacBook Air doesn't have it anyhow. Uh, but the Mac Mini does, for example. Most laptops will have a HDMI output now. All TVs have got HDMI in them now. So HDMI has become a bigger deal. You know, Blu-ray and, and so on and so forth, right? What on earth is the point of putting gold plating on there? And I guess some of it comes back to perceived durability. But the durability is actually quite complicated. Gold is a soft metal. But it's the softness is only relevant when you compare it to what its receptacle is. So if you have two metals, in fact, any two minerals, and you scratch one against the other, the age-old question is, which one is going to get the scratch on it? So everyone knows that diamonds are the hardest naturally occurring uh, mineral in the world. So if you use diamond and you scratch diamond on glass, uh, it will scratch the glass. The diamond won't get a, stra- a scratch. So this guy in 1812, a German geologist and mineralogist, a guy called Frederick Mose, M-O-H-S, he created what's become known as Mose Scale of Hardness. And the fact it was done in 1812 had nothing to do with Tchaikovsky's overture Although I suppose you could argue the cannons were made out of metal and it was sort of about metal, but never mind that. Anyway, so most scale of hardness, right? The idea is that each mineral is scratched against each other mineral to figure out which is harder and which is softer. Very rudimentary, but that was the whole basis of it. And you can then come up with a scale where where one is talc 
which is you know what you get talcum powder from and a 10 is a diamond and everything else in between of course now i'm not going to spell out what they all are it's not relevant but gold is somewhere between two and a half and three based on its level of purity and obviously if it's an alloy thing the numbers change but in any case between two and a 2.5 and three most sockets use well manufactured out of copper or nickel but there'll be a layer of uh, tin lead solder over the top now of i guess there used to be the problem is of course now lead's bad so they're trying to move away from tin lead so, you know, they're moving to different uh, kinds of solder. So they're moving away to, uh, let's see, we've got copper alloys, including bismuth, and you've got uh, silver and indium and, and zinc. And all of these different coatings are designed to essentially uh, protect, to provide a good good contact point for resistance, but also such that when the metals scrape up against each other, there's there's as minimal erosion as possible. Because every time you insert and remove a plug, you are essentially scraping one metal against another. So putting gold on your plug, but not having gold in the receptacle, it creates a dilemma. Okay, well, which one is going to wear out? Because one of them, one of the one of the two is going to wear out at some point. And the problem is, of course, that tin lead solder has a, a different uh, hardness to let's say if we're using zinc or we're using silver or indium or whatever else they're using or bismuth whatever they're using what alloys they're using you know to get away from the lead i mean obviously gold on gold is ideal however the truth is you don't really know but if you had to pick one of them to wear out which one would you sacrifice and i'd put my hand up and say i'd sacrifice the plug because i mean i could always buy another cable but replacing a socket in a stereo amplifier well, i don't know about that or a tv set that'd be bad Bottom line, the HDMI standard says that you have to have a plug that can support 10,000 uh, cycles, essentially. That, that's insertion removal cycles. Now, it's pretty common to go for a number of about, I don't know, 2,000 in, in, in the industrial uh, area that I play in. And, yeah, that's fine. But in consumer space, it's, you know, it, there's more of an expectation. That said, how many times have you really inserted and removed your HDMI cable lately? It's not something I do every day. Less than 10? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you could argue that this whole discussion about gold being more durable or, or, or having or being, you know, it's just a little bit ridiculous. It's like, yeah, well, no one's going to sit there and go plug, unplug, plug, unplug, plug, unplug five times a day, 365 days a year to get to 10,000 after a few years or whatever the hell. You know, they're just not going to do it. In any case, so we'll put that to one side and say, you know what, it probably really doesn't matter. Eventually, it's going to wear out no matter what metal you use on there, either the plug or the socket. But the one thing that gold does do, or rather doesn't do, that most other metals do do, is it doesn't tarnish. So it doesn't oxidize at any decent rate of knots. So that is to say, everything eventually will oxidize. However, gold takes a long time very long time compared to something like aluminium and compared to copper because when copper oxidizes of course it goes that horrible green color and uh you know and they, and they make roofs out of it and they oh, look pretty green roof and every time i look at that i'm like oh that's copper that's rusting nice but you know it's it gets to call that green look and it's like that's cool so when i for example when i was in canada when i even had a look at um at uh quebec city and um 
Montreal, and they had a whole bunch of buildings there with the copper roofs, right? So they got that nice green sort of sheen on the roof, and it all looks very cool, very different. What was the point of that? Oh, yeah, that's right. Because gold doesn't do that, that means that, well, at any, any, at any decent rate of knots, it means that essentially you'll have beautiful, pristine con- contacts on your connector for a long time. And that is, of course, until all the insertion and removal cycles scrape off the gold layer and then you're back to whatever's underneath, which will corrode, and then, of course, you're kind of screwed. So the gold plating, it's important to realize that it's not actually gold connectors. It's gold plating over the top, and it's only a thin layer. So I guess the next thing to, to sort of get our heads around is just how thick is it? Well, I had a look into this, and I found a really good article... Uh, and uh, there's a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it was a technical report by AMP Connectors, and I've actually used AMP Connectors multiple times in my career. And in any case, it's called Golden Rules, <laughs> which is yeah, kind of cool. Play on words there. Guidelines for the use of gold on connector contacts. It talks. It, there's there's a table in it that talks about uh, the thickness of the gold plate and how many insertion removal cycles you could expect from such a thickness, which is cool, right? We're looking at, for 2,000 insert removal cycles, which is what I would expect for most connectors, you're looking at 1.3 microns, which is micrometers. But if you want that in micro-inches, that's 50 micro-inches. That's not a hell of a lot of gold. So then I thought to myself, okay, why don't we do some math on this and figure out just how much you would have to put on a HDMI cable because they don't publish this, right? You don't. I, I mean, I I looked and I couldn't find it. I just did some math myself based on a few assumptions. So what we're going to do is we're going to assume that all you need for starters is 1.3 microns. Looking at a standard HDMI cable, a Type A cable, which is the full-sized one and all of its dimensions. And a HDMI uh, Type A connector, just if anyone's interested in uh, in millimeters, is 21.3 wide by 4.55 mil high by 10.9 deep. That's the outer shell. That's the most impressive part. The pins on the inside, of course, well, yes, I mean they're also going to be coated, but you know their area is negligible compared to the outside. So we're only going to consider the outside area. We'll assume it's a perfectly rectangular shape. I know it's not, but if you were to actually unwrap it, you would probably find the area would be quite comparable to treating it like it's a perfect rectangle. So that's close enough for this sort of estimate anyway. So if you do those, if you crunch those numbers, you end up with about 563 square millimetres. If you assume a thickness of 1.3 microns, that gives you a total volume of gold of 0.73 cubic millimetres. We take the density of gold, that's 19,320 kilos per cubic metre, which is, you know, divide by several thousand or whatever, you end up with um, 0.019 grams per cubic millimetre. That gives us a total per, per, per plug of 0.014 grams. That's not very much. So if we then look at the current exchange rate in US dollars, that's about $41.34 a gram. At least it was yesterday when I checked it. So that works out at $0.58 cents a connector or $1.17 if you consider that it, you've got two connectors on a standard HDMI cable. $1.17's worth of gold on the, on, those, uh, on the cable. Now we're going to assume that... The thickness is approximately linear-ish. I say approximately linear-ish 
But I imagine that as you add layers, that it would not be a linear relationship in your wear-out mechanism because if you look at the table, it tends to suggest that in the AMP technical report. So we're going to quadruple that number. So it's not going to be 1.3 microns now. It'll be four times that. So even if we do that to ensure we get to the 10,000 required by the HDMI spec, we still and we the, the bottom line is each cable is just is about four dollars sixty eight rounded up caught five dollars for error. So assume then that going from a HDMI cable without gold on it to one with gold on it costs you an extra five bucks in gold. Here's the thing: is that less or more than you thought, Ben? That seems a lot less. Because that's the thing: you think about gold, you think gold ingot, gold bar, gold wedding ring. I mean, I weighed my wedding ring just for the hell of you know for, for the hell of it, and, and it's it weighs ten grams. But if you look at the weight of the HDMI cable, it's a tenth of a gram of gold in it, one tenth of a gram, which you know is one two hundred and eighty fifth of an ounce. It's nothing, yeah. practically nothing. And yet they charge how much more for these things? I mean, if you look at any shopfront retailer, right, like. Um, uh, in Australia, maybe Officeworks. In the US, Best Buy. If you're in Canada, Future Shop. Doesn't matter. Pick one. You go in there, it'll be at least $10 more for the gold cables, but it's usually a lot more than that. And I saw price differences when I did the research for this of up to $60 more for the gold cable. But it's 5 bucks worth of gold. <laughs> and people, over, they, they, they think it's more. They, they just think, oh, it's gold. It's got to be expensive, right? They use gold in space, right? Because gold is good, and they use gold in the to line the inside bay of the McLaren F1. Apparently, they did. Did they? Really? Well, I haven't actually looked physically because I've never actually seen one in person. But you know, I saw a documentary on it once, and I seem to recall they lined it with t- with gold foil because gold was better at reflecting heat. Oh. I actually think it was so that when they lifted the bonnet, well, you know, the engine cover, which is at the back of the car, but you know what I mean. When they lifted that up, it'd look shiny and cool. If you're shelling out $1.25 million for a car, sure, put a bit of gold on it. Why not, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Tesla should have gold door handles or something. But anyway. Surely that's not what people buying their hi-fis are doing. Uh, what's that? Lining their houses with gold foil. <laughs> I mean, why not? Uh, actually, I can think of a good reason why not. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, it's just it's it, to me, it's crazy, right? The disconnect between what you're paying and what you're actually getting See, the, depositing the gold on there is not hard, right? I mean, you could deposit zinc on there or tin on there. It doesn't matter. You plate it with whatever. You know, electroplating techniques are well and truly understood. You're not going to lose gold in the process. So retailers know by saying, you know, it's got gold on it, that people will expect to pay more, and they do pay more willingly. So that's the gold plating thing and how much gold is in it. So now I want to look at some real-world applications. Okay, so before we go on any further, uh, Ben, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Audible. Sure, John. So Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, smartphone, and MP3 player. You can listen whenever and wherever you want, just like the show you're listening to right now. They've got over 150,000 titles to choose from across every possible genre. And right now, you can get a free audiobook download when you sign up today. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic. 
Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic to get your free download. And what should you download? What book would be good? Well, I've uh, I've been using Audible for a number of years and went in and thought about what would be appropriate for listeners to this show. And there's a couple couple that I'd suggest. One is um is Eric Ries, the Lean Startup, which if you're if you're interested in in how companies can how startups can function and make decisions in in situations of extreme uncertainty, dealing with just huge number of variables, some of the kind of things that we've talked about on Pragmatic. It's it's a really great book, and and you know maybe sometimes it gets a little bit um a little bit heavy on the jargon, a little bit heavy with the marketing speak, but I think uh, ultimately this idea of of kind of this validated learning and and avoiding vanity metrics it's it's been really helpful for me in thinking about running this business and in thinking about um businesses and 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 ventures in general. The other one, which I thought would be a really uh, appropriate fit, uh, I just did a search in Audible for pragmatism which is a uh, a philosophy and there is a great book um about John Dewey who is the father of pragmatism one of uh, America's leading philosophers and here's the best thing is this is narrated by Charlton Heston I don't know how you can go wrong with this book and this is John Dewey the giants of philosophy anyways those are just a few of the hundreds of thousands of books you can download with audible and a couple that I think would be good to use as your free books. So again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic to get your free audiobook today. And thanks to Audible for sponsoring the show. Thanks for that, Ben. Uh, definitely check it out, guys. So in the real world, what I mean by that is, what's a typical application for this stuff? For both of these kinds of cables. So we'll look at each of them independently. Start with the speaker cables, though. Unfortunately, um, power at your amplifier does not equal power at the speakers because obviously you've got to, the signal's got to be carried on the cable out to the speaker. You're going to lose some power in that because no, no conductor is a perfect conductor and I'm not talking about superconductors here. So in copper, you're going to have, you're going to have a loss. You're going to have resistance. You're going to lose power. How does that work? Why does that happen? Well, it's Ohm's law, right? Ohm's law, voltage equals current times resistance. And the, the addendum to that is if you want to calculate power, you multiply your voltage and your current together. So P equals VI. So those two little bits of formula, we're going to run some numbers. So let's assume that you're using a 25-watt uh, bookshelf speaker. It's 8 ohms, looking at about 14 volts output at the amplifier output. Works out about 1.75 amps. That gives you over a 10 meter long cable run, which is 30 feet, which I think is a reasonable kind of number for a, a normal living room, right? It's probably a little bit more than what you need. I mean, even if you went up, th- went through the walls or went through the roof, even if you took the long way around, I think 10 meters, you know, 30 feet's probably a reasonable sort of number. Given all those numbers, we're looking at, if you use OFC, you're looking at 1.5% voltage drop, which is pretty minimal. If you're using the cheaper figure eight cable, that's 6.8%. So there is a difference there, but it's less than 10% for both of them. I looked long and hard for some conversion figures between wattage and dBs for a given speaker. So sound pressure level that you're actually going to get out of these things. So we'll switch to an 8-watt speaker. It, let's say it's it's got a, a peak rating of 35 watts. That comes out, well, this particular speaker in this example has a sensitivity of 85 dB 
and that's at 2.83 volts at one metre distance from the actual speaker cone. In other words, at one watt, the speaker produces uh, 85 dB. So we're going to work with that now. So if I apply a a 6.8% drop to that power reaching the speaker, well, where does that leave me? It leaves me with, drum roll please, a 0.3 decibel loss at the speaker. 0.3 dB. That's how much you'd lose if you swapped out your IFC cable for the cheap stuff, for the standard copper. 0.3 dB. That's nothing, or practically nothing. I mean, most sound pressure level meters won't even detect something that small. Now, noting, of course, that dB is not linear, it's a logarithmic scale, and that 3 dB is, you know, the half power, twice power point. In other words, uh, if you are 3 dB above or below a reference point, it will be either, if it's above, it'll be twice the amount of power. If it's below, it'll be half the amount of power than your reference point. But 0.3 of a dB, it's out by a factor of 10. You know, you're, it's negligible. Okay, so that's for an analog signal. So the signal to the speaker is an analog signal, and that signal is going to be um, essentially affected by noise. But the bottom line is the power is going to the power is going to diminish based on you know Ohm's law, and therefore you are going to end up with less power at the speakers. However, because it's analog, you can't recover you can't recover lost information from noise or perhaps better way of putting it is you can't regenerate the data. Once you've got noise, you, you're gone. Why, why that's important is that if we now talk about HDMI cables, the thing is with HDMI cables, the claim is that the gold reduces the resistance overall. So the, it reduces the contact resistance in the connectors. And that's one of the claims that they make about these gold-plated connectors. Now, if you consider the fact, we forget the fact that they don't they don't get fouled up with corrosion. That's great. That doesn't actually mean that. I mean, if you if you start from a, a copper connector with that's you know like tin tin lead coated, you know it's not going to be an issue really if it's clean. So you got let, let's compare them when they're in their primes of their life rather than that, rather than the state where one's corroded and the other hasn't. If you consider that to be the case, you've got two cables side by side. One's gold-coated, one isn't. Uh, consider that a normal HDMI cable is only 3 to 5 metres, which is you know 10 to 16 foot long. You know That's really long HDMI cables. Most of the HDMI cables I've got are, you know, are you know, like I said, about 10 feet or less. The loss of voltage from one end to the other is going to be minimal. And if you buy a cable that's, three, that, that's 10 feet long... HDMI cable, it's not gold-plated, it still has to work, right? It, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like the voltage is going to get from one end to the other. It's going to have a, a, a loss of resistance. You know, if putting gold plating on there actually improves that resistance, it makes no difference. It's digital. Uh, HDMI has a whole bunch of different signals on it. But there is some 5-volt logic, and there's also I2C, uh, which is... You know, predominantly is 5 volts, though there were the newest standard dropped that to 2 volts, I believe. But uh, in any case, we're going to assume uh, – I don't have – I looked into the HDMI standard and I couldn't get enough information in the lead-up to the show. But uh, if anyone knows the uh, actual voltages, please let me know. But based the information I have at hand, uh, let's assume everything is 5-volt logic on a HDMI bus. So they'll set 
a tolerance and they'll say if it drops any lower than 4.7 volts or 4.5 volts then that is not a logic one so long as the voltage doesn't drop below that critical threshold then it'll recognize it as a one or it'll recognize it as a zero and that's the end of that discussion in other words you could drop 0 0.1 0 0.2 0 0.3 volts and you would not notice the damn difference because it's digital because you can regenerate the data. Once you know what the data is received, you then retransmit it on, and it's re refresh. That's the whole advantage of digital over analog. So noise has nothing to do with it. So noise, sorry, noise can't affect it. And the idea is that if gold is actually improving, the like reducing the resistance, who cares? My three-meter-long cable uh, without gold on it works just fine. What's the gold giving me? It's not giving me any less. The, the contact resistance has made no difference. So the thing that gets me about this is that all the gold really does is lots of insertion removal cycles. It'll probably perform better. And I say probably because, honestly, it depends on the receptacle. So if the socket is made out of a harder metal than the gold, like anything higher than three, and most of them shouldn't be, but you know they may well be, depending upon what alloys they, they've used. Because in, in the quest to get rid of tin lead solder, they've they've come up with all sorts of different alloys to get rid of the lead. And some of them may have slightly higher hardnesses than gold. And the people that manufacture the gold plating will say, oh, that's fine because no one's going to insert and remove this more than 2,000 times in a lifetime. That's probably true. Uh, what was the point? The point is, honestly, unless you're inserting and removing the damn connectors a lot, it makes no difference. It just doesn't. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to corrode. The other thing is exposure to oxygen. When the connector is actually plugged in, honestly, unless there's moisture around the actual contacts where that where they actually touch, the dissimilar metals touch, honestly, you're not going to get much point corrosion at all. And if you're in a high salinity environment, perhaps, uh, you might get surface corrosion. But where the two physically touch, no oxygen can reach because they're physically touching. So if you have a cable plugged in, you leave it plugged in, it will stay connected generally unless it gets wet because there's no way for the oxygen to get in there. There's no path because it's it's physically touching. So it's the exposed parts that aren't that would get surface corrosion. All right, so those are some real-world applications. But there's still more to say about what actually goes into a good cable. So what does make a good cable? And honestly... The problem is with this answer, it's kind of like saying what makes a good car uh, or what makes a good vehicle. I should I should rephrase that. Obviously, if you're moving house uh, once a week or you're moving other people's, uh, you know, uh, in North America, you guys call them pickup trucks. And in Australia, we call them utes, you know, short for utility vehicles. Whenever fi someone finds out you've got a pickup, what do they say? Hey, can you help me move my sofa, couch, TV, cabinet, whatever? Yeah, I, I had I had some mates at uni that that you know that they got a Ute and it was they said it was just a change overnight. Suddenly, as soon as people found out they had a Ute, it was oh, can we borrow a Ute for insert reason here that had nothing to do with them. Uh, anyway, so I, I guess it's like that question: is it what, what makes a good vehicle? It depends on what it's being used for, and the same answer is true of the cables. So we've sort of I've sort of narrowed this down with this OFC and gold plating discussion to two common situations, both to do with audio visual: one an HDMI cable for gold plating, and one for speaker wire for uh, for audio for speakers. So if we leave it in those in those areas, 
HDMI cable is the most interesting one to look at. So let's look at that. What makes a good HDMI cable? And the first clue is it's not the, the gold. First of all, you need to have really good shielding because the digital information, obviously, it will get corrupted. So the best way to, to stop noise getting to it is to have an electromagnetic shield around it, which is you know, most commonly used would be a braid or a foil. Uh, foils are considered to be more flimsy. Braids are considered to be more flexible. So braiding is generally the preferred approach. Shielding uh, that is bonded to the outside of the connector, so in other words, where the connector connects into the socket, that braid is actually connected to the outer shield of that, such that the shielding is therefore continuous and there is no exposed signal wire anywhere. One of the other issues that you come across with shielding cables is the issue of shielding at both ends because the problem is if you've got two pieces of equipment and they each have separate power supplies or even if they're coming from the same common source yeah they'll have different uh, ac to dc converters or dc to dc converters in them they could have floating grounds whatever they may have you can end up with multiple earthing points this is more of an industrial problem but you know from a consumer level is very unusual but something to be aware of just if, if anyone's interested is that you'll you should really only ground and earth your shield at one end so when you plug it into a socket and that socket is grounded within the tv set let's say well the other end of the other device it shouldn't be grounded because if it is the shield shouldn't be connected because if it is and that other device is grounded then you can actually get a current flowing through the shield i call them uh, that such things i call them ground loops and uh, earth loops and that can actually cause a lot of problems with noise and it can actually yeah, cause all sorts of other problems at a consumer level it's pretty uh, rare for it to be an issue and when you get these connected these the good quality cables they will have the shield bonded on each end in any case it's also tricky to figure out if they are or they aren't unless you're going to get out a uh, a stanley knife or a box cutter i should say and uh, and strip back the plastic to see if it's actually bonded or not uh, if you've got a multimeter, the easy way to find out is just to... Um, actually, you, guess, you can't really prove it's a shield, but yeah, you could always just uh, bell out the uh, the outer, she outer shield of each of the uh, plugs to see if you've actually got uh, direct connection. Anyway, shielding, very, very, very important. So on the issue of uh, flexible cables and OFC then, if you have ultra-flexible cables if you have a requirement that your cables are ultra flexible then sure ofc style cables will be better for you not not because they're ofc but because of the fact that they've got a high strand count so for example if you're in if you know i know you're a musician as well but ben i'm not really a musician you're a musician right mm -hmm. and all of the audio cables that you're going to have up on stage you know from your guitar from your mic to your amplifier they are all ultra-flexible cables. They're usually bigger and heavier, and they're very flexible. Right. And that's important because you move around the stage, you, you know... But the problem is, when we're looking at figure eight OFC cable around the house, I don't move my speakers three times a day. I don't wander around the room holding my speaker. So if they're fixed in fixed locations, and of course they're going to be, then why do you need an ultra-flexible cable? Because nothing's moving. Right. So it doesn't make sense. You don't actually need ultra-flexible cables when it comes to speaker audio. You just don't for, for the average home stereo installation, which is where most of it is being flogged off. How does this all stack up? Honestly, 
the problem is that there's no real right or wrong. It's only what is the right thing for the application in question. People all want a simple, yes, gold-plated connectors or OFC cables are always better or they're always a waste of money. But the truth is that there are some benefits. It's important to recognize where the benefits come from, though. And honestly, uh, it's not possible for me to give a definitive yes or no. However, on balance, I will say that gold plating and OFC are not worth the money for, I would say, the vast majority of consumer applications. Most people don't insert and remove their cables a thousand times. Corrosion resistance is less of an issue with either type of cable, therefore, so the gold doesn't help really that much. I can see gold being helpful if you are in an environment that is highly corrosive. So if you live right next to the ocean, so the air has a very high salinity, uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, if you're beside a swimming pool, perhaps, then gold may be an advantage. Sure, absolutely. But honestly, um, that's going to be an unusual situation. Although I will actually, I'll, I'll confess that in, in one of my in-laws has a, uh, has recently built a, uh, a pool and they've got an entertainment area out in the backyard. And the entertainment area is is walled on two sides and the other half of it is open. So it's kind of like a, it's like a detached uh, awning, if that makes any sense. And they've, they've mounted a HDTV out there so they can actually watch TV out there. Now, that would be an application right next to a swimming pool where, you know, a gold ca- gold-plated cables might actually be helpful because they would be more corrosion resistant. But to me, it's just weird because it's like, okay, you've got a TV set and fair enough, it's bolted to the wall, but it's out in the yard and it's not locked up. There's not, there's no locking up of it. It just seems strange to me, but more people are doing it. You have a problem with glare? I would have thought so too, but actually no. Really? It's funny. Maybe it's because there's a lot of trees around there. Uh, Maybe they're, they're blocking the sun at certain angles. I, I suspect at certain time of days, there would be a lot of glare actually. But, you know, then again, I could say the same for the TV in my room. I mean, the sun comes into it in the morning and yeah. we end up drawing the blo- uh, the uh, the curtains in order to actually watch the TV because of the glare. But um, anyway, so that's one application I can think of. But most people aren't doing that. So most people wouldn't be able to justify them. I mean, the other issue then with the, the, the resistance is unless your speakers are 100 metres away or 300 feet away, you know, there's still going to be no real measurable difference to your ears using standard cable versus OFC cable. You're just not going to notice it. And unless you're moving cables all around all the time, there's no need for you to pay extra money to get ultra-flexible OFC cables. And if you're getting a better result with OFC, it's got nothing to do with the fact it's OFC. It's got everything to do with the fact that it's just got a lot of uh, strands in it, and that's it. So for the average home user in an average situation, and that includes most audio files, (laughs) they're not worth it. And that's it. If you want to talk more about this, you can find John on Twitter at John Chigi. The same on app.net. And you should sh- check out John's site, techdistortion.com. If you'd like to send an email, you can send it to John at techdistortion.com. I'm Ben Alexander, and you can reach me on Twitter at FiatLuxFM. You can follow at Pragmatic Show on Twitter or at Pragmatic on app.net to see show announcements and other related materials. I want to say a final thank you to our sponsor, Audible, and Squarespace for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you check them out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, everyone, for listening, too. Cheers. Cheers.